All right. Welcome to the Apex Vaulting Podcast. Uh, guys, two podcast episodes in two days. This is crazy. Um, th- uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, as always, please share it with someone you think might also enjoy it. Uh, if they're into pole vaulting, I think they might like these podcast episodes. Also, subscribe. Um, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's Apex Vaulting. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Um, and please leave a comment, a review. I'll, I'll be grateful for that. Um, also, if you do enjoy our content, you might also enjoy our Instagram page. It's just at The Real Apex Vaulting. And we're also Apex Vaulting on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and if you have any comments or questions, please email us at apexvaulting at gmail.com. And today we have another guest for you. Um, he's been on the podcast before. Have you, how many times have you been on the podcast? Just once or twice? I've only been on just once, just once. Oh, just once. So this is the second time, uh, Noah Kaminsky, uh, Noah, why don't you introduce yourself, um, to everybody a little bit. And then I'm going to tell you about that phone call that I got that will kind of lead us into the conversation that we want to have. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Bronco. My name is Noah Kaminsky. I am the pole vault clinician. I'm the pole vault guy in New York City Public Schools, which is kind of a funny title, but that's kind of the role I serve. The Public School Athletic League hires me to run their clinics for beginners, for intermediate athletes. And then I also end up coaching a lot of the athletes on the runway. Um, but uh, I am a full-time middle school science teacher in, in New York. And I, I coach a high school soccer team in addition to my pole vault coaching. I've okay. been coaching for about six years now. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. So you have experience coaching. You're also an educator. Um, so, you know, you have, you have a lot of background with uh, teaching youth, uh, working with youth. Uh, and I think also just to go a little bit more in depth on explaining your role for the uh, public school athletic league in, in New York City you know, just to paint the picture, if anybody's ever seen video or pictures of the New York City Armory, it's an indoor track facility and kids from how many areas of Manhattan are they coming from? Generally, all five boroughs at the biggest meets, I'll run a clinic for anyone who shows up. But, you know, right. so all, anyone, so all five, um, all five boroughs are coming there. They're practicing with the Public School Athletic League and what do you, what would you say is like the most amount of kids that you get on the runway? In a clinic, I've had up to about 45 or 50 kids, give or take. Okay. Um, that was one of the tougher days for yeah. sure. So yeah, up, up to 40, 50 kids, um, which, you know, again, as we go through this podcast, I want to kind of talk about that kind of setting and how to work with large groups like that. Cause I actually got uh, a Facebook message or uh, Instagram DM, I forget which, from a coach who was like, you know, how do I handle large groups that also all have diverse backgrounds? Like some are straight beginners, some may have jumped a little bit, you know, and everything in between. You know, I I think this would be valuable information for people in those settings because I think sometimes that's difficult. I think it's one thing to coach at a high school and maybe have like four or five kids on the runway. Um, It's quite a different thing also to be at my club where everything's very structured and sure, you might have to onboard a new client every once in a while to the process and structure. But when you're dealing with at at the start with 40, 50 people that don't have a process, don't have a structure, and how do you guide them through that? I think this is going to be an amazing, amazing podcast for people who are like maybe dealing with those types of situations and knowing the expectations they have. But before we even get started with that, no, I wanted to tell you about this phone call I got. And it just goes to show uh, where the maturity level as a sport 
pole vault is at. Because I think, you know, although lots of amazing things have happened in the history of the pole vault, people are jumping super high now, higher than ever. Um, it's amazing to watch the pros. I think when we look at our sport in comparison to some others, and I'm going to bring up a few after I explain this phone call, I think you can see why we're not really at the level we need to be at as a public community. So I, I got a phone call from this mother. Um, she has a daughter that jumps and they've been going somewhere for pole vaulting lessons. This is literally what the mom said to me. All right. She goes, look, um, I don't know anything about pole vault, but I'm a coach personally. I instruct people myself and other things. Um, it sounded kind of like she does some personal training stuff as well as maybe some other sports. And she goes, again, I don't know anything about pole vault, uh, but I kind of don't feel like my daughter's getting any instruction. They just jump. Like there's no breakdown. There's no structure. They just jump. And I think my daughter needs more. It's not enough. It's not, not going to take her to the next level. And, and she said, and you know, for all those people out there that think it's a waste of time to post stuff on social media, she said, I actually follow you on Instagram and I see what you post. And I, I was wondering your thoughts, you know, on what we should do. Right. And so, you know, our conversation went a certain way. And I, I explained a little bit about the structure of Apex and the drills. But I just think that so many people are getting away with just letting athletes line up on the runway, they take a jump and they give a cue or two, like, Hey, more drive knee. Hey, more bottom arm, you know, and then athlete goes back online and it needs to be broken down more than that. I, in fact, I don't know if you saw my tweet yesterday, Noah, I posted a tweet that Tom Brady, you know, seven times Super Bowl champion, Tom Brady, every off season starts by doing fundamental throwing drills, very basic things like a high school quarterback would do. That's how he starts his off season. And I said, what makes pole bolters think that when you start off season, you shouldn't be doing pole runs, one left, two left, three left drills, take off, swing, turn, straight pole, not straight pole. Like what makes you think that you don't have to break it down to the fundamentals again, but Tom Brady does. You know, and well, I'm with you. I mean, I think like the school's analogy, I think the school's analogy is like the, the gym teacher that rolls out the ball is a gym teacher, the phys ed teacher that teaches kids skills and how to play the sport and then practices it before they actually play the game is a phys ed teacher. And I think I see a lot of that, not just in pole vault. I mean, right. there is a lot of it in pole vault, but I see a lot of it in track and field too. It's like, just, just go run some laps, you know, just like, just yeah. go run, you know? And getting back on the runway from a six is not going to serve you the way you want it to, the way you can like talk the talk and say you want it to in the long run. Like you have to do the drills that Tom Brady does on the small scale, the fundamental work before you can ever think like, I'm going to back this up and take some bigger jumps. And, and like, it's just, I've been doing this with you for five years now. I've been in the apex system and like, I still find it like kind of frustrating that more people are not seeing that. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I love the fact that you brought just like high school track into the picture and listen, I, I think there's plenty of good track coaches out there. There are good. So I don't want to like trigger anybody. I don't want them to get right, for sure. hearing us talk. There are good <laughs> track coaches out there. 
But if you are one of the good track coaches out there, you're listening to this, or one of the good pole vault coaches out there listening to this, let's be honest. How many people are just teachers in the school? They're like, you have to coach track. And then they, like you said, they just watch kids take laps where literally if you wanted to be a volunteer football coach at a high school, they would want to know where you played football in college, what position, what were your stats? Do you have coaching? This is for a volunteer position. Meanwhile, there are high school track coaches that are getting paid. They have paid stipend positions that have zero experience because they just, they need a body. You know, so this is what happens in the track world. Can I flip that for you for a second? Sure, sure, sure. So then like, look at it from like our perspective where, where like, I feel like things are very structured. There is a lot of protocol. There's routine. I feel like when I warm up a kid in, in uh, whether it's track or, or with my soccer team, like yeah. I am there, like I'm watching every single yes. kid, every single way they ex- execute the drill, yes. you know? And like, I think. To some people, like even the athletes themselves, it's like, whoa, this guy's doing too much. Like, why is he in my face about this? I'm giving, like, he's giving me cue after cue after cue. Like, they're simple, they're straightforward, but it's like, this is too much. No, that's appropriate. That, that's what you want, right? You want that, someone who's going to be dialed in right there, helping you every step of the way. And I feel like in the track world, that's sometimes a very foreign conce- concept that it almost feels like it's, it's invasive. Well, okay. Well, I, I think, you know, you're bringing up some great points. Um, one, I think you're right. I think just the nature of the sport. I mean, unfortunately there are some schools, there might only be one or two track coaches on staff and they have all the throws, all the jumps, all the sprints, the hurdles and distance. How do you cover all those bases? So I think just the nature of how our sport has been run, that's why there's this hands-off approach. Then the other thing that I want to add, and I, and I was kind of telling somebody this after I went to state meet of champs this past weekend, and you know, I heard some stories about certain athletes and coaches and things that have happened. And you know, there's always you know, the athletes that bounce around from one coach to another and so on and so forth, right? And one of the things that I, I thought about was like, I was listening to a podcast episode of Jocko Willink. And for anybody who doesn't know, Jocko is a former Navy SEAL. They have a business uh, where it's called Echelon Front, where it's a business leadership program. And, you know, Jocko also does a bunch of other stuff. But one of the things that Jocko said, he's like, most people don't like to be coached. <laughs> right? Most people don't like to be coached because it requires you to be criticized, right? Like you said, I'm over there doing running drills and here's this guy, Noah, who keeps telling me to get my knees up or do it faster or I'm going too, uh, I'm doing going too fast or whatever the case may be. And it's like, God, if that guy would just like leave me alone, you know? And so what Jocko said, he's like, think about it. He goes, we have a business where people will, will contact us, pay us to coach them. And even sometimes at that point, they might be like, hey, dude, back off right? Like they get, they get upset during the coaching process. So I I think getting coached is difficult already just at, at at the get, right. Then on top of it, again, looking at our sport, like I said, where sometimes just coaches are spread thin, they can't be on top of the athletes, the way you describe, 
you know, it, it does become foreign where it's like a Tom Brady. I mean, who knows how much he's paying his quarterbacks coach in the off season, you know, or even the example that I, I've been giving to people lately. I, I listened to a podcast uh, with Tim Grover. He is, uh, if you don't know who Tim Grover is, he, you definitely know his clients. Uh, two people on his clientele list are Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, right? So one of the things that Tim Grover said about Michael, he said, Michael would always tell people he doesn't pay Tim to coach him. He pays Tim so that he doesn't coach anyone else. <laughs> right. That's funny. When <laughs> I must winner, require a lot of pay. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. But it's like when you're a real winner, you're trying to win. You're really trying to win. You want to be successful and you're leveling up. And um, I actually talked about this yesterday with Ellie Fitzgerald. You know, Ellie, Noah. Um, we were talking about how, you know, every time you want to level up, things get harder. You have to add more, right? So for people that are high achievers and really want to take it to the next level, right? Those types of people want to be coached. They want someone on top of them because they're trying to take it to the next level. They're not trying to do easy stuff, right? Whatever is easy isn't good enough for a true winner or someone who's success driven and they want that coaching. But yeah, I, in the track world, you're right. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have accomplished certain things, especially when we're talking about high school or just collegiate level, um, without someone on top of them, without someone pushing them, without, you know, the grinding. Um, and then I, I feel like I constantly get pushback from people. I'll get DMs from people that jump really high who are like, hey, like, you know, I don't know if you should be having athletes train as hard as you're saying that might actually be counterproductive and so on and so forth. So it's, you know, it's, it definitely is sometimes disheartening. And that's why I say like the level of maturity of our sport isn't as high as some of these other sports, because in boxing, for example, like I love to use boxing. I mean, would you ever see a boxer go into a, a fight without a trainer, without a coach? Never, never, never. It's, they it's have just, a team around them. Yeah, it's just not possible. And 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 if you ever do watch a fighter who ends up having like, let's say, a trainer who's a little bit uh, of a pushover, that fighter's gonna start losing real soon. You know, it's like they're looking for that right. coach that's gonna keep them honest, keep pushing them, keep motivating them. Um, but again, I just. I feel like so many people, and like to bring it back to specifically pole vault, I think so many people have been getting away with just giving a cue after a jump with very little structure, uh, very little drilling, and, and a very, very thin playbook. Like, you know, me and you have always talked about this. I mean, how many people, they might have only written chapter one of their instructional guideline on pole vault. And once you finish chapter one, there's nothing else left. Like we did it. We went back as many lefts as we could. We went up as many grips as we could. We went up as many poles as we could. Now you're starting to run through and I'm sorry, end of career. You know, there's nothing. That, I feel that. like that should be, that should be like chapter 17 in a really well-written pole vault book, right? Like well, I, I, th I think, I think in a really well uh, written pole vault book, we, we don't end up having a season of run throughs. You know what I mean? Like Fair I think enough. There's, a, yeah. there's a structure where that just doesn't happen. I mean, like, again, to use a different sporting world, but like in the lifting world, right. It's like 
You're not supposed to be lifting to failure every single session. Sure, once in a while, you're trying to push the limits. Maybe you, you lift to failure, but you really want to have successful lifting sessions where you hit your numbers and you win the day. So you're comfortable winning, right? And you go to the right. meet and you can complete your lifts. You don't want to go to a powerlifting meet and bomb out and not complete any of your lifts. Same thing in the pole vault. Like we want to win the day. You know, I want to be able to complete the drill. I want to be able to run from the approach. I want to be able to grip that grip. I want to be able to roll over that stiff stiffness of pole. And that way I'm winning. Yeah. The day. So and I, when think, I go to the meet. I'm comfortable with doing that. I think that's something that I encounter a lot, not necessarily with the beginners because they don't really know exactly what they're doing, but I feel like a lot of the intermediate kids that I work with, it's, it's always about bar clearance. It's, it's not always tuned into like, you know, I, I need to cover the jump or like, I need to really make sure that I feel takeoff before I start my swing. Like yeah. those are those little things where like, you can have a day where you jump eight, six when your PR is nine, but if you completed the drill, like, and, and it's 85% proficient as you've, uh, what's it called promoted in the past, yeah. like, I'm, I'm good. Like, that's a good day. Eight, six, yeah. if your PR is nine, like, and you did the drill, you executed, that's awesome. Like maybe you did something weird with your leg that, that caused the bar to get hit, but going into the meet expecting like every single day, it's going to be PR. It's just, it's just unreasonable. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. Well, it, it's funny that you bring that up. Cause literally yesterday, Ellie on the podcast was talking about because of the way that we structure things and focus on the skills and also discuss okay, what are realistic goals for progress? Because obviously when you're a beginner, okay, like I've never pole vaulted before. I go to my first meet. Oh my gosh, I PR'd PR. nine feet. Well, I'm <laughs> never PRing nine feet again. Like that's, nope. that's not happening, right? <laughs> it's a great day. <laughs> right, yeah, that would be amazing. Um, but it's like, you know, so your, your percentage by what you're going to PR by as you continue your career is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, like you said, it's unrealistic to c consider that every single meet you're going to PR. Now, sure, if you have someone who's jumping eight, six, nine, yes, they might PR like a couple meets in a row, but then they might dip down a little bit and then come back up and then dip down and come back. Right. And then there's all the things about you know, how you run practices. And I, you know, I know people talk about periodization in, in lifting, but it's like, you know, your periodization of jumping, you know, going back to the Tom Brady quote, it's like, okay, if it's early off season or it's early season, maybe you're only doing everything inside of four lefts or four rights. If you're lefty, right. You're doing right. everything inside of there and you're doing certain drills where, okay, maybe that person who's jumping nine, nine, six, 10, 10, six, they go to their first meet and they jump. Now, instead of 10-6, they jump 9-6, but it's from a really short approach and they had better push off. And right, there's all these markers that are like, all right, we're heading in the right direction. When we get back to that full approach, we will hit a PR, you know? Um, yeah. And, and it and won't be like my PR at that point, but <laughs> go ahead. You often say like, you know, we're not, we're not going into it like not hoping for a PR. Like right. if it happens, awesome, right? Like if you PR from a four left, good for you. That's awesome. And like, we're going to take your four left as far as it'll go. But when you think about periodization, like it doesn't have to be about the bar clearance. Like you said, right. like if we're limiting ourselves to like twos, threes, and fours for this meet, I don't know why you jump from a two, but like threes and fours, yeah. as opposed to next week when it's like, all right, I think we're like a little more dialed in. Like we can take it back to a five or a six, but like, we're not going to do sevens or eights until 
groups or like state meter champs, you know, like we're not ready for that. And the more we do those, the more we burn ourselves out before it becomes really critical in those high stakes moments to jump a PR from a seven or an eight. Sure. Yeah. And, and look, uh, you know, I feel like we're going uh, into a different direction. I definitely want to come back to coaching clinics in in a second, Sure. but yeah, I think, you know, for every person who maybe started the first meet of the year from full approach and went to the championship meet from full approach and everything went smoothly, there's probably 10 other athletes that tried that approach and it doesn't work, you know, but I, I, again, I think, I think it's hard and it goes to show the maturity of our sport, you know, in other sports, things like that are looked at more critically and, People say, well, you know, percentage wise, if that's your approach, you're going to fail 90% of the time. Like, listen, in football, there's a time and a place for a Hail Mary, right? If there's less than 10 seconds left, you're on the 50 yard line and you're down by four. A field goal is not going to tie it up. Like you got to chuck the Hail Mary. But if you were chucking Hail Marys from the beginning of the game to the end, you were going to get beat bad. Yes. That is not yeah. a recipe for success. Right. That's just not a good how you play football. And I, I think the same thing, if people looked at things more critically and said, wow, you know, um, we started, we, we finished indoors pretty well. We finished indoors pretty well, worked up to let's, let's just say seven left, right? Let's say even eight. Okay. We worked up to eight left. We finished indoors really well. Whatever our championship meet was, we did awesome. Well, I kind of want to see that eight left at the first outdoor meet. And then we're going to do the second meet. And let's say even like the second, third meet of outdoors, you you hit a PR. That's great. That's great. But but at that third meet. Eight to 12 weeks left. And are you going right. to be able to carry this? And this is where, you know, me and you, we, we talk about this all the time, you know, and you even, you know, applied these kind of principles to your soccer coaching and your soccer seasons, right? Well, if you didn't start regrouping and retraining, right, you are not going to carry that runway speed for another eight to 12 weeks. And then shocker, this is where people start running through. They can't do their eight left approach anymore. They're not getting on the same poles. And right. listen, I know people try to fudge it all kinds of different ways, but I mean, I remember literally, you know, cause I, I went through it, you know, I went through it and I think I mentioned this on one of my uh, recent podcast episodes, you know, I, I had a guy, won division three nationals, Craig Van Leeuwen. He's been on the podcast. You know, he won division three nationals indoors, jumped 17, five and a half. Um, and you know, we had to meet the very next week. So, you know, you try to like, you know, hit big again. Cause I mean, you're traveling, you're going to a big meet. And then we just kind of kept going from full approach and pen relays. He looked really good, which, you know, is like mid April. And, um, yeah, by mid may, uh, he barely got all American did not jump 17 at nationals and he looked like shit. And, and, and then even like two, two of my female athletes, like one of them was all American indoors. Um, they both no heighted at nationals. Like they look terrible and it just hit me. I'm like, if you think about training principles, forget about pole vault for a second, 
You just think about the human body and you think about training principles. You cannot carry a peak for more than like one or two weeks. It's just not going to happen. And I remember one time even listening to this one strength and conditioning coach on a podcast. His name was Dan Baker. Um, He was a strength coach for the Brisbane Broncos in Australia. I mean, obviously the best rugby team ever. They're named the Broncos. No relation. Yeah. (laughs) And um, they were five-time world champions in rugby. And what Dan Baker was saying was like, he's like, listen, if squatting, deadlifting, whatever made you the great rugby player that you are week one of the season, what makes you think that once the season starts, if you stop lifting, that by week 36, because that's a rugby season, you will still be that great rugby player. And he said there were only five weeks in the history of the Brisbane Broncos while he was coaching that they didn't squat. He said all five of those weeks were the week of the world championship when they won. He let them completely not squat those five weeks and that's it. So, I mean, again, going back to the pole example, if you think you're going to just carry that indoor wave all through outdoors, you are mistaken. And I, I mean, I think year after year, if you start to critically look just to, you know, for those people that love pole vault, just look at the D1 marks. Just look at the D1 marks. If someone hit big indoors and they hit big again, first, second, third meet of outdoors, there's not a huge success rate by the end of outdoors. They're not doing well at the national meet outdoors, you know, and this is not a shocker. Because people in the pole vault community do not want to make the connection that pole vaulters are athletes and they have to train like the rest of the athletic world. I mean, I literally had someone try to tell me on a pod, uh, on a podcast, on a DM that, you know, claiming a really good pole vaulter could only do five pull-ups. You know, this is a really good pole vaulter, professional pole vaulter, could only do five pull-ups. And I was like, well, are you claiming if this person got stronger and could do more than five pull-ups, they wouldn't pole vault higher or they wouldn't pole vault as high? And the person was like, DM conversation over. Well, if the person goes, well, they might have to gain weight to do more pull-ups and then therefore they might not jump as high. And one, um, I don't know if people know this, it is possible to get stronger and not gain weight. Two, If you gain, let's say, five pounds of muscle, but your lifts increase by 25 pounds, that's a net gain. You will get better. Um, And three, listen, if you happen to not be that freak that's uh, jumping a professional mark without training your ass off, like, you probably have to train. I don't know what to tell you. And you're not going to be able to just run from a seven all year round. But yeah, I mean, I have, I have some interesting thoughts about like periodization. Yeah. Um, because so often it seems like the scheduling of professional athletes changes in each like Olympic cycle. So, for example, yeah. in this past Olympic cycle, it was later than usual, right? Yeah. How does how does a professional athlete hang on to their their peak for that long, or do they like plan yeah. three peaks in a season, like? But clearly they're doing it because they're still showing up and they're still jumping higher heights than they did earlier that season, which should say to the rest of the pole vault community or any athletic community, like you have to plan these things. Like it's not just you just go all and give it your all the entire season. Like it is well careful. It is sorry, it's well curated and well planned. Like 
Michael Jordan has a coach. Tom Brady has a coach. People are planning out these schedules for the athletes. And there's no reason that pole vault coaches, even at the high school level, can do the same for their athletes. Um, I think like in my own context, and and I don't mean pole vault in this instance, but in soccer, like one of the funniest moments I've ever had with my soccer team, who I've now coached for six years, is... I walked out there like three seasons ago and I was like, guys, we're going to have practice today, but we have a big uh, game coming up later in the week. I need you to give me 70% today on the soccer field. And I, I, the looks I got were hilarious. Like, what do you, what, what 70%? What does that even mean? How can I play soccer at 70%? It's like, just run a little slower. Like, I'm not asking you to be sloppier. I still want you to be skillful. But if you give me a hundred percent today, two days from now, we're going to suck. We're not going to go out there and do our best. Right. And you know, I try to educate pole vaulters in New York City about that. But it is difficult because as a clinician, like I don't see the athlete on a regular basis. I might see them once a week. I might see them once every two weeks. Right. So a part of my role is is not just like teaching new skills, but also sort of helping kids think about like if they're going to be consistent about this on their own without me, how do I embed those skills and yes. help them think about their own training and talk to their coach about it too? Well, right. So, okay. So I'm going to give you an example of what I would say is the wrong way to run a clinic or a camp. And then we can talk about the right ways. Uh, and, and this is a perfect lead in. So for anybody who's listening, who's like, oh my goodness, like I have a camp to do, or I have a clinic to do, and it's all these people of different ranges. Like, how do I do this? Um, I remember there used to be so many pole vault camps and think about it. This might be a week long camp. So many pole vault camps, the way they used to market their camps were like our camp on average gets a one and a half foot PR from campers. Um, What does that mean? Maybe, maybe. I don't even know if that's actually honest. Um, On average, every kid, I don't know. Well, so, I mean, like, here's the thing. I, let, let's, let's say even like some of these camps that advertise such things were even honest, right? Like they actually got an average foot and a half PR from everybody. I think one in the time before pole vaulting clubs, that was probably more possible because maybe you just put the kid on a, on a bigger pole because they were blowing through all season and they PR. Maybe that's possible. But my viewpoint of a, a camp or a clinic setting, like you where you might have 40 kids on the runway, um, you're not trying to get them to PR. And even if you could get them to PR, I I want people to imagine this. Imagine as a clinician or a camp coach, you got this kid to PR because you put them on exactly the right grip, exactly the right pull, exactly the right step. And, you know, you massage the whole approach so that, it just worked out that day they PR'd. That athlete is not going to be able to do that without you. And you haven't imparted any kind of structure, system, or skill development that that kid can now take home and do on their own. Like for me, like going back to the phone call that I got, you know, the mother had asked because they're, they're coming from like a really far distance. And she's like, you know, do you think it would be useful even, or, or do you think it would be a waste of time if we came to Apex once a month? And what I said to the mom, I said, I, I think it could be useful. I said, one, 
send me some videos of your daughter jumping. That way I can kind of game plan already what drill progressions I want to do with her. Two, I can walk this girl through our system and structure and kind of almost write a prescription of like, okay, you need to do these drill progressions back at home. And then every month they come back, we can kind of spot check, see where she's at, where she's made progress, where she needs more progress, what alterations to make to that prescription or recipe that I gave her for success. And I think as a clinician or a camp coach, the best thing that you could do is give people the drill progressions, give people a system that they can now take home and do when they leave camp. That's, I mean, I, I was very lucky and fortunate to do um, a vertical assault camp, which was amazing back when Mike Lorick was in PA. Um, they would have something like eight pits, over 100 kids. It was an amazing experience. I was also lucky and fortunate to do a camp with Alan Launder at Slippery Rock. Again, like 100 kids. It was amazing. And my thought always from the get was I need to give these kids the blueprint for success. It's not about me getting them as a high a grip as they can handle and getting them on a big pole and getting them to wrap a bungee and hoot and holler. That's not what the camp is about. The camp should be like, hey, guys, I'm going to give you the recipe. Take this recipe home. And if you follow this recipe, you can cook up a PR on your own. And I think that that's what I always felt was really important from a clinic or a camp coach perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have to empower the athlete and the coach to walk away with something that's going to be valuable for them because like you being there is a privilege for them that they don't normally have. Mm -hmm. And so like with that privilege, you have to recognize that you're going to disappear too. And so you have to give them as much value to walk away with as possible, mm -hmm. knowing that you can't always be there to coach them. Right. Plus I also like, I love to see coaches who come to my clinics with their athletes, or if I'm coaching clinics for coaches, cause I do that too. Um, find something that they didn't know about in the pole vault, which is so simple, right? Like just a little tiny, like, I don't know, like a, a rollover drill or like jump drill or like just a swing to the pole runs. You know? Pole runs are fantastic way to check for the plant. Right. And like to see them light up when they're like, Oh wow, I can do that. That's so easy. It's like, yes, it is so easy. And, and I'll tell you what to look for and you can do this and your athlete's going to get better. Um, I just find it amazing that there's, there's still so many opportunities in front of pole vault coaches like us who are committed to educating the kids in yes. front of us, um, that, uh, it's a wonder that, you know, we don't see more coaches coming around to the pole vault or, um, hosting, I guess, more clinics. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm losing my train of thought here, but I, I just feel like those moments are really special. And um, I, I enjoy seeing them because it empowers coaches and athletes to do better on their own. Yeah. Well, and, and I think a couple of things off of what you said, I think that a lot of people when they coach, again, going back to how we kind of started this conversation, I think a lot of people, the way they coach is basically off adjustments I don't know how much coaching is actually done. It's a lot of adjustment making like, Oh, I'm really good at adjusting grip and step and pull. Um, so they, they kind of stick to that. 
And then even something like a poll run, I don't think enough people have really fleshed out how to explain it where a beginner or a beginner coach, like you're explaining, can hear you explain it and go, wow, that makes sense. Real quick, real simple. And you know what? I'm still figuring that out. Like I still stand in front of the athletes and say, let's do our pole runs. And I'll watch a kid start running down the runway with their pole and see it start bending backward behind their right, head. Yeah, like you know? they move the tip behind them. Yep. Right. Like they're literally outrunning their, their, their tip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they'll come back to me and I'll be like, Hey, you know, you should start with the pole leaning forward because it allows you to not just plant easier, but it makes your running mechanics better. Yeah. You know, and like that, something as simple as that, I feel like I have to correct over and over again, but like, that doesn't require me, like any sort of expert, like any coach can do that. Any coach can see that the pole is now bending too far backward. Like anyone can do that. Right. But like, as I said at the beginning, like I'm still figuring a lot of that stuff out. I just happen to be the best person for it in the PSAL right now. And I, and I, again, like I recognize that as a privilege. I love it, but I'm still very raw at this because our sport is so immature. Like I I think sport is still growing to the point where there are pole vault coaches out there who have enough knowledge to help, but are not even at the level like that. I would say like a master coach is at. Yeah. Well, I, I, and again, I, I think, you know, and you've seen me do it. Like when a new person comes into the club of any level, it could be a middle school athlete. It could be someone who's like 55 years old. They come in for their first session you know, I have this kind of like onboarding system of like how to introduce them to everything, whether it's running drills, rollovers, pole runs, uh, the first jump into the pit. There's a way that I describe and explain stuff where, again, it's been fleshed out because I know the common mistakes, where mm-hmm. people are going to go wrong, and so that I can adjust them. I think a lot of people haven't fleshed it out that much. They spend most of their time with people who actually know how to pole vault. And it's very rare that they onboard a beginner, you know? I, and I think that's something that I think more pole vault people need to understand. If you want to be a pole vault coach, you better get really comfortable at working with beginners. It's not about the person who's jumping high. I, I mean, listen, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, going to States with Ellie, like she was on the podcast yesterday. It's really nice to like game plan and strategize. Okay. What, what approach are we going to do? What pole are we going to start on? What grip? Um, what are we going to open at? Are we going to pass a bar? Are we going to do this? Are we going to, that's fun. And I like winning and don't get me wrong, but you better be really, really spot on on getting beginners involved in our sport and teaching and instructing those people. Um, because let's face it. I mean, like all sports, I mean, I brought up Tom Brady before for every Tom Brady, there's probably like a hundred thousand, maybe 10,000 kids who play quarterback that are never going to be on that level, but they still know how to throw a ball. They still know how to call a play. They could still play football. But the, but the thing is in our sport, I, I almost feel like sometimes if, Certain coaches are not getting an athlete that kind of has a knack and can already figure something out. They're kind they they don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be bothered. But no, you have to want to coach beginners. And again, to go to your setting, 
right? Again, it's very different even in my club, right? We have 10 athletes or less to a coach. Um, obviously, even when new people are coming in, there's probably a bunch of people there already who have been in the system. So it's, they get to see stuff, um, see other people do it right. How do you actually structure, like walk us through, let's say 40, <laughs> right. 40 so, kids show up. Yeah. I mean, first of all, and, and, I, and so I, I would is, assume you have to just approach it like they're straight beginners. Like even if they've vaulted, like you have to walk them through some kind of structure. Do you break it up into different groups? Do you break it up into different like um, stations? What, how exactly do you deal with that? So in addition to having that many athletes come to the clinic, sometimes at like those early meets in November um, uh, or in the beginning of the outdoor season, like in, in March, I also have rolling attendees. So I might get like my first 30 kids and then I'll have nine more show up and then I'll have four more show up mid session, which is crazy. Like I, I do think that that's a big challenge, but I'm wearing a hat that says like, you got to do it. You just have to integrate the kids and help them out. The other thing is I don't always have enough poles for everybody. So I'm dependent on what the PSAL and what the armory provides in terms of their general population poles, which tend to be a lot older. Um, There's no perfect line like you see behind your right shoulder. (laughs) Um, And that's also challenging. So sometimes I find that I'm giving my, my, you know, uh, like hundred pound ninth grade girl, a pole that's way heavier than she can use because yeah, like, because that's all I've got left. I've given out the pole that fit the athlete. Let me just interject here. Right. Because I think again, kind of like how I was like, a lot of coaches don't want to deal with beginners, you know, unless they have some, they think they have promise. I think the other thing is people have too much of a rigid mindset of like, I can only coach if it's like this, you know, and you bring up the pole situation. And this is why I've always been so big on straight pole drills because everybody who's like, no, 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 you got to get someone bending the pole the first day and whatever. Cool. What happens if you don't have a pole that the person can bend on the first day? I mean, like you said, I'm, I'm very fortunate. We have a huge selection of poles. I'm not really big on like having someone bend the pole the first day anyway, but right. Like I could do that if I wanted to. The thing is, if you're presented in a situation, cause you know, we also at apex do the run to coach program. So we work with several different high schools. And sometimes I go to certain high schools where they want me to kind of like test out the group and they might like you, they might give me 20, 30, 40 kids the first day. And it's like, I don't think it's that important on that first day to get someone on a pole that bends. I just want to make sure, obviously, that they're not going to go on a pole that's going to break. You know, you don't want to give like a 175 pound sophomore boy, like a 90, you know, like that, that might not be good. But other than that, you just want them on a pole that it's like, you know, not super, super long. So they don't have it like dragging behind them when they're using it, but you've got to kind of matriculate them into this situation. One of the things that I would often do, especially if I have a helper and I know in your situation, you don't really have a helper, but like I would set set up stations like, okay, we're going to just teach you rollovers, you know, so get comfortable moving the pole forward. And then we're going to teach jumping drill, rollovers, jumping drill. Okay. Let's teach you how to jump up and move the pole. Once I see enough of that, 
We start to matriculate people onto the runway. We start from one left, two left, three left, you know, and listen, most people might not get to a three left and they're going to do overhead carry, no plant and just a couple takeoffs, start to swing into the pit. Most people might not turn the first day, but you're, you're, you've got to keep that line moving. You got to give these kids an opportunity to try the sport out. And like you said, I've also had the situation where it's like, we already finished rollovers. We already finished jumping drill. And now kid comes in. So I kind of, you know, and I don't know how you feel, but it's like, I kind of like, listen, if somebody's like brand, brand new, like they, like you said, they didn't see the drills. They didn't do any drills. I might even do just like standing grip plus a couple grips just to make sure it's super safe and have them start really close, like 11 feet, you know, to go one, two and jump into the pit. And you just yeah. got to keep it moving. And you get, I also feel like, I don't know about you, but like you got to get a little hands-on. Like sometimes you might have to like grab, grab the pole, adjust the way they're holding it, you know, make sure it's, you know, I mean, make sure one, it's not upside down. Uh, you want the tip going into that the happens. That totally right. happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, w- walk us through that a little bit, maybe. Okay. So, so the kids show up, right? The first thing I'm going to do is teach people how to hold the pole. I'm not talking about how to pick it up. I'm not talking about how to plant it. I'm talking about how to walk through space with the pole, yes. right? I literally teach kids like hold the pole vertical when you're walking, yeah. make sure that you're like, carrying it like you would kind of like a musket or a rifle so that yeah, if you turn around because like two by four, right? <laughs> yeah, like this is how you kill your clinician he wants to help you when you turn around and you're holding it horizontally i get knocked out yeah <laughs> uh that's bad so i teach them how to hold it i teach them right side up versus you know wrong side um tip down and uh then we get into a line uh shoulder to shoulder just like you do at apex and i teach uh how to pick up the pole um, and then I teach how to do one arm pull drops. Uh, I do it in a line so that I can see every athlete. I might stop when they're doing it just to make sure that like one kid is holding the pole correctly, but it does take some time. And I think there's a little bit of frustration in the kids that go at the end of the line because it is a clinic. Like I'm supposed to spend some time with these kids. And so I will walk up to, you know, athlete number four and say, Hey man, like you need to bend your wrist a little more, keep that elbow down. You need to keep the wrist or the arm, the, the hand at the center of the chest. You know, I, I will say that to a kid and then I'll say, just go, just drop it, you know, like let go and extend with your left arm and let's see that pull drop. I do that the first time through, I may do that a little less the second time through, but really pull drops are a great way to sort of catch the kids as they're rolling in too. And then if I have so many kids and not enough poles, I'll have uh, a line of kids stand behind the first line that are holding the poles. And then they'll switch after, you know, two or three drops. Um, I'll teach two arm drops. uh, And then that's when I start to break things out. Right. So like the kids that really need to keep on working on pole drops, I'll have them continue a little bit. And then, like you said, doing stations is really valuable. So I'll, I'll teach rollovers for another group um, while the kids who are doing the pull drops already know how are still working on that on their own. Um, I think kids need to play like they need to like learn by just doing. And the more you kind of back off, even with a beginner and just let them figure things out. I think the more confidence they can build when you come back and you're like, yeah. Hey, wow, that looks really good. You know, you like, you've clearly been 
tuned into how you're supposed to do this. And the thing that I told you about earlier now looks great. Right. So I've got stations, I've got the pull drops going, I've got uh, rollovers going uh, on the runway and usually in pairs. And I don't think I've broken into three stations yet, yeah. but um, you know, with just one person, it's, it's rather difficult to balance just yeah. two. Yeah. Well, no. And again, for people who are listening to this, who are going to be in a situation where they're doing a clinic or a camp, I think teaching those drills off the pit are invaluable because now when people come in, it's like right away, you can break off into those stations. They could be doing the rollovers, the jumping drill, planting drill, maybe pole runs. It all depends on your actual environment, right? Like, like, listen, like if you're going to have 40 kids at camp, but you have four clinicians, well, you can easily set up four stations at that point. And then you could even break it up in such a fashion that maybe, you know, one of the stations is the pit, right? So like everybody's going to rotate and get pit time that day, but you know, you're going to keep hitting all those drills and they're valuable things, right? Like pole runs are valuable. Jumping drill is valuable. Rollovers are valuable. Pole drops, planting drills are valuable. These are things that Athletes need to learn anyway. They're they're one of the elements of the vault, and by doing it every single day, like I, I always use, use this as an example. It's like, well, you know, if something's important, you should do it every day, right? And people are like, I guess I'm like, well, you shower every day, right? And everybody's like, oh man, he's right, right? Because it's like, yeah, showering is important. You got to be clean, right? you got to brush your teeth at least once a day, right? Like, otherwise you're going to have rotting teeth, right? So it's like, if something's important, you have to do it every day. And if you, and again, like it doesn't have to be the apex system, right? But every system needs to have some sort of drills to address these elements of the vault, like pull, carry, plant, run, take off, you know, so on and so forth. So when you can start to make those stations, this is a really great way for all the athletes. And like you said, I think in a big setting where there's a lot of athletes, once you teach the, the, the stations and the drills and they're doing it safely enough, right? They understand the limitations. Like let's say for a rollover, they know how high they should grip. You know, they know how many shoes behind the tip they should be to keep it safe. Now you can kind of let them kind of work on the drills and you could kind of spot check certain people and someone's having a lot of trouble. You help them. You could give, you know, high fives to the kid that's really getting it, you know, but it's like you start to go through that system. I mean, I, man, I, I think you're going to see great progress by the end of the camp, by the end of the, the clinic season for you. And I want to talk about that with you. You know, you get, you get to see a lot of progress. And I think like we've said prior, now the athletes actually have the tools for success. They have the blueprint, the recipe, right? You know, they know it's like, okay, well, when I'm back at school by myself or when I go off to college or when I, whatever, right, I can do these drills to help keep myself in check and continue to improve in this sport. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. I mean, I see it too. Like I, I definitely make changes in the clinics that I run over the course of the season so that I'm not doing as much of the beginner stuff. And I start to move to like 
always on the runway. So, you know, if like in the middle of the season, we're doing like ones and twos, we might move to threes and fours by the end of the season, but that doesn't mean I'm not doing the basics and the fundamentals. I'm just doing less of it over time. Um, This past spring has been really nice for following that arc for me. I feel like in the indoor season, I get a lot more beginners and the clinics tend to be more beginner oriented. Yeah. But this past uh, outdoor, which is the first time we've had an outdoor, um, Mm -hmm. spring season, um, where I did these clinics again, uh, uh, cause I only did two indoor seasons cause of the pandemic. Um, I worked with three different high schools and I was very clear that we were progressing each time they saw me, like we are not sticking with the same things we did. I am moving you forward because you're ready to move forward. And this is where you should be. And then seeing that arc of where it closes and like having those kids come back to me after like their freshman and sophomore championships um, or the city championship and saying like, Hey coach, I got second place or like coach. I'm so thankful. Like I cleared a bar for the first time and I won freshman, sophomore championships, you know, like those are amazing feelings. And it, and like, as much as I would love to take credit for building the fundamentals, it's really the athlete that's like playing with that toolbox that we've built up so that they can be successful when I'm not with them. Um, There was one more thing I wanted to say like uh, about the clinics, which was, I think being efficient with your time, like you were saying with the stations is really important, but like you also noted, like sometimes you don't need the pole in your hand. So like the jump drill works really well balanced against pole runs. And if I can, if I can manage my time efficiently so that I'm as available as possible to give feedback and spot check, you know, for all the kids that need the like good job. That was awesome. Or like, Hey, let's try that again. I didn't really like the way you dropped the pole there. You didn't squeeze um, your right arm when you were going to to flip. Um, you know, that makes me a more effective clinician. And I think too often we might get caught up with like that one athlete who's really struggling and like really needs the attention or the other, or like an athlete that is doing really well. And we would just want to be there to like, give them the high five. I feel like, like being, equitable to all and being able and free in your time to spot check and say, um, to give each athlete one single cue that's going to work for them makes me all the more valuable as a clinician to the athletes. And then again, like it comes back to you by the end of the season, you start to see how that's progressing. Yeah. No, look, and I, I think, um, one of the things that I was thinking about, cause you were like, Oh, you know, you don't, Obviously, if somebody's struggling, you need to help them, but you don't want that person to monopolize your time. You're working with a big group. I think on the reverse end, I think also, and this is something that I think we talked about the other day, I think coaches a lot of times, like they'll see someone who shows a lot of promise and they're like all over that kid, you know? And I get it. Like everybody likes to coach someone who's a great athlete. Like I, it's fun. I I like winning. I get it. You know, Uh, I'm a very success driven person. But that being said, I, I think a lot of times coaches don't see the disservice they're doing for the great athlete, because if that great athlete, if you're giving them extra special attention, you know, you're constantly just watching their jump or watching their drill and you're ignoring others, you're actually enabling that kid and getting them to think, oh, I get special treatment. And what happens when they have a bad day? (laughs) Well, not just forget about the bad day, but you're really setting that kid up for failure because 
now that that athlete is expecting special treatment because they're a good athlete. And the thing is when things get hard, there is no special treatment answer. When things get hard, the only answer is like, yo, you know, that drill that you don't like, you need to do that drill. How to do it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, you that, know that should be you know that workout. You don't like to do Yeah, You got <laughs> to do, do it that, you know, I think like that should be a teaching tool. I think like there's a really critical component of a clinic where you recognize the athlete that is good at the drill and stand with the beginners and say, look at Jimmy when he swings to the belly, look at how he keeps his right arm straight and doesn't bend it until he's ready to during the turn, you know, like that's what I'm looking for you to do, you know, like, and have the beginners be like, Oh yeah. Okay. So like, how do we do that? How do we turn to the beginners and help them get there? Right. Like, and then when that, that, when Jimmy comes off the mat, you're like, yeah, man, like good job. Do you realize that you did this and now I'm using your good technique to help these kids because they're not ready for that, but I want them to see it or I want them to try it on the next one. Like you're valuable to me. But, yeah. but not so valuable that I'm not going to spend time with the beginners and, and really help them get there. Well, right. And, and I think, look, any coach in any program, the moment you start to ignore beginners or you start to ignore um, the people who aren't at the top, uh, you, you're not going to be coaching for very long because that stud athlete is going to graduate that stud athlete is going to retire that's that right like you better be working with the next in line and the thing that i always think about and again i know this maybe sounds corny but i always say like the most important person in my world is the person on the runway right now right like whoever's up right now this person is so important to me right now And when they finish their jump and I give them their coaching, the next person is the most important person in my world. Right. And I think if more coaches, what I'm sorry, say that again. I said, just be present with the athlete that's in front of you. Like make eye contact, make sure they feel like they're hurt. If they're like a little bit fearful of taking this next jump or remind them like what they have to work on, which you told them the last time you saw them, like all of that. Right. Right. No. Yeah. I think, Listen, I think that's huge. And I I think if more coaches did that, we would have more people involved in this sport. And it's kind of weird. You know, I feel like so many people talk about growing the sport. We need to grow the sport of pole vault. And yet I see these practices that are not going to grow the sport. Like we just talked about, you know, if you're running a camper clinic, uh, I mean, I guess you could promise a PR. I just don't know if that is actually going to happen. Um, or you could give people the blueprint, right? The recipe, you know? And I know some people, they think they have like some super secret thing that no one's ever figured out. Like, and they want to keep that secret because they have a competitive advantage. Um, dude, you don't have any secret. There's no secrets, you know? Um, but yeah. And then the thing that's important is like, you need, you need to be able to work with beginners and you, you can't shy away from these large groups. You can coach the large groups. I think, and this is something we didn't talk about yet. And so I, I think we need to discuss it is maybe you need to adjust 
your expectations when working with large groups that are either beginners or novice, you know, you have to adjust those expectations. Cause I know, again, like I said before, I think there's some people like, well, I can only coach in this kind of environment and this kind of setting. Cool. That's not always going to be the environment and setting. And you need to be able to adjust what you do. Right. I do it myself. Like I said, like I do the rent to coach uh, program. And sometimes like I have to work with large groups as you do, you know, and I just what I do. I can't run it like an apex session, you know. Um, what would you say to someone who is about to encounter a situation like yours in a camp or clinic, clinic setting? What should the expectation levels be? Like what, what are you actually trying to accomplish by the end of the day? Let's say first day. So, what should my expectation Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should it be so my expectation laps? Are we doing seven laps? <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, I think it's a good day if you get back to a two or a three at a beginner clinic. I think that's really good. If the kids are swinging up and getting vertical in any way, shape, or form, I think that's that's awesome, right? Like that's almost above and beyond. So if that's above and beyond, then I think like setting your expectations is really teaching fundamental skills in the pole vault in the right sequence. So, you know, pole carry, run, plant, take off, um, off the ground. Like, I don't even think you're going to get to off the ground and that's totally fine. Yeah. You, you right? might not get to the turn. Like you might just do takeoff swing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you have to be a very good coach to get your kids to that point, um, that quickly. Um, but I think like on a simple level, uh, forget pole vault for a second. Like everyone needs to walk away learning something new and that could be a nugget or that could be you blasting their world apart about how amazing and fun pole vault is, but also like how it's just the sum of its parts. Like you can put it together like anything else, you know, right. as long as you know the components. Right. And I, I stop myself when I'm doing these clinics and, and I remind myself to ask the athlete, did you learn something new? What did you do today that's different than yesterday? Yeah. How am I helping you? What did you not know before that you do know now? How can you go back to school and do this again productively for yourself? Yeah. And nine times out of 10, the kid's like really smiley, really bubbly, really happy and just says, yeah, you really helped me. This is something I did not know that I could do before. And now I can do it with my coach. Do you think maybe, maybe you can do it with your coach? Like, can you tell your coach how to do this drill and maybe they can watch it instead of me? Yeah. and you can get better at it and they're like yeah yeah so i think that's really where you should set your expectations and if and if that's well above uh where most coaches feel like their expectation for coaching the pole vault is i have no apologies about that i think the standard should be exactly that not just in a clinic but also every day you have a practice an athlete should be walking away learning something slightly new or or improving in some sure. small way Absolutely. You should be trying to learn something new or master something new every single practice. And going back specifically, like large group, clinic, uh, camp, beginners, like you said, I think the expectation of like, look, you might only get back to a two or a three. It might only be overhead carry. You might not even definitely not overhead even carry only. <laughs> yeah, you might not add the carrier plant, you know, to, at that first session. But if you can get them to take off and swing and land on their butt into the pit and move the pole, feel that they're moving the pole. 
right. feel the takeoff, feel that long short and jumping up. I think those are all crucial. And the analogy that I always give athletes, because I, I think something that's super, super important. And like you said, like it's having the athletes understand stuff. You have to explain this process and you have to explain it. I, I think analogies are always amazing. I always bring up the boxing analogy. I go, hey, I go, we're pole vaulting right now, but imagine you had a boxing gym and I never boxed before and I come to your gym. Would you let me fight like box on the first day? And every athlete I've ever asked, they go, nope. I go, how come? I'm like, dude, I want to box. I just saw a fight over the weekend uh, on pay-per-view and I'm excited. I want to learn the sport of boxing. I want to get in the ring. I want to, I want to mix it up with someone. But, but Bronco, what are those bags that hang in the gym for then? Like if we're just going to uh, fight all the time, then like why do we have punching bags, right? Right. There's heavy bags There's speed bags. Um, and what I always explain to people is like the reason they wouldn't let you do that is because you get knocked out the first day. You don't get to fight. <laughs> and in fact, it takes anywhere between like eight to 12 months of training, right? To actually do a fight or even spar, just spar. And I'm like, you're going to have to, like you said, hit the heavy bag, hit the speed bag. Coach is going to have to hold mitts and you're going to have to hit certain patterns. There's all these little drills. You have to learn the footwork, you know, and once you've accomplished enough of that, they start to slowly put you into boxing like scenarios. And I go, but yeah, in pole vault, there's so many people that are like, here's a pole. Here you go. Run. And even Take listen, it back. Let's jump. <laughs> like I said, I was very fortunate to do a, a camp with Alan Launder, you know, uh, uh, you know, he's passed away since God bless him. Uh, you know, but the thing is, he said, even in beginner to book, he's like, you really want kids to get back to a three and do like full jumps, wrap a bungee. And I used to really press hard for that. But the longer I've done this, I just don't think Alan understood the level of satisfaction someone could get from just doing a two left swing to a sit. Because when that kid, feel, I'm like, did you feel that? You made the pole move better. Do you, do you understand how you, you know, you use your upper back muscles, your hands got above your head and you, you know, you swung and you, you felt that. I think the level of satisfaction someone gets from learning a skill, like you said, they're learning something new. That is even more amazing than just wrapping a bungee from a three, especially if they're like jumping in the dark. Cause you can get some athletic athletes, you know, athletic people to just like get back to a three, run into it, lean back and kind of like wrap a bungee. And you'd be like, wow, that's like so good. And you try to explain like how high that is and why that's a good spot. And, you know, but it's like by actually learning the skill, they're starting to piece things together and be like, okay, all right. I've already accomplished takeoff and swing. I can't wait. Hopefully next practice, I can get a turn in. Hopefully the practice after that, I can start to carry the pole. Hopefully, you know what I mean? And like they could see the building blocks and the foundation. And again, I just, I don't think most people understand that if you teach it effectively and explain what the athletes are doing, so they're actually conscious and aware of the skills that they're building. I I just don't, I don't think they understand how gratifying that is for, for a new athlete trying to pull for the first time. 
It's, it's great. I mean, like, I think the last part of that is also showing them what a measure of success is as well. Yeah. So like, oftentimes we talk about indicators in the pole vault, yeah. like how well are you doing something? So one indicator would be landing deeper in the pit than you had yes. before or uh, landing in the center of the pit. Like if you yes. fly off to the side, that's not good. Right. Right. That's another thing that I walk my beginners through um, on when we're doing the clinics is like, if you land deep in the pit, that's great. Here's what you do next so that you can make it a little more challenging for yourself and keep on that same measure, like try to land deep in the pit, but now it's going to be harder because you've earned it. Right. Or if you like fly off to the left or fly off to the right, like, Hey, like you're not feeling takeoff the way you should, like you yeah. need to relax, let your arms go up before you start pulling your hips up and trying to swing through and yeah, get your maybe hips you ran into it or so on and so forth. Right. There's so many different things, but like, we need to be there to watch that. Right. On the other hand, a coach that may not know the pole vault very well, can still see those things and say to the athlete, Hey, this happened. This is where you landed. Let's think about why that happened. Did you, did you feel like you were tight? Did you feel like you weren't jumping up off the ground? And that's where that conversation becomes very productive when the clinician steps away. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're saying like, like we've been saying this whole podcast, like you're trying to set people up uh, to have the blueprint for success. And what if, once, you know, they're the athlete and maybe their other coaches uh, that they have available are comfortable doing it without you there, you know, you've done an amazing job as a clinician or a, a camp coach, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think this has been an amazing episode. Uh, I know it's late for both of us. Uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to add before I end this? I just, I, I think a lot of people are turned off to starting the pole vault, mm-hmm. like whether your, your coach won't let you pick a pole up and, and do it for the first time, or you're a coach that's a little hesitant to let your, uh, inexperienced athletes try it. Like, I think there's a lot of value if you know that there's someone in your community that you trust that can teach the pole vault that you trust. So like yeah. in the PSL, like I'm very fortunate to have that role. And I think they're doing a really good job of, um, elevating the the skill technicians or the event yeah. technicians like me because i'm not just the only one there's there's people who teach the high jump and the sprints and all that yeah oh you cut out all right well i don't know what happened to noah uh but we got through the bulk of the podcast. It's unfortunate we can't hear his uh, closing statement. But for everybody listening, thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, remember, please subscribe. Our YouTube channel is Apex Vaulting. Um, on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe. Please share with someone that you think might find this valuable. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Real Apex Vaulting and Apex Vaulting on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have any comments and questions, please reach out. We love helping people, um, you know, just email us at apexvaulting at gmail.com. Thanks guys.